This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, Canada's land border with the United States reopened after a 17-month closure due to the pandemic. Fully vaccinated American residents may now visit Canada for non-essential reasons. The reopening came a week after we saw significant events resume across the economy, live theater, baseball games, and museum exhibitions, to name a few. All of this is taking place as we see a significant increase in the number of COVID cases, especially in the United States. Our Zoomer squad weighed in on the reopening when they joined Libby on Monday. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. If you're trying to accomplish maximum protection against infection, against picking up this virus from somebody, then you would keep the border closed. If you're trying to keep the economy going and minimize the number of deaths from COVID, then you would uh, open the border. Uh, Bill, what do you think? I think it's very worrisome for our CARP uh, members who are concerned mostly about their own health and their health of their their uh, loved ones. And the mixed messages uh, we're getting is not making them feel any better about uh, having the border uh, opened up. Most that we talk to would rather that the province was and the country were more careful uh, for a while yet until see, we see what's happening. Having a higher uh, higher rates and, uh, uh, and less vaccination uh, of uh, the Americans as they come across the border, uh, knowing that they'll want to, of course, come and enjoy uh, Ontario is something that uh, our members, uh, for the most part, aren't ready for yet. Hmm. And, you know, David, I'm reminded here in Ontario when, uh, you know, there was backtracking, but it looked like we were about to reopen schools, reopen for a week or something. This was just before the third wave. Correct. And Correct. You're, you're absolutely right. And yes, let's, no, let's not. It's that that delicate balance. And, it, and uh, um, I, again, I come back to what are we trying to accomplish in the first place? The politicians, when you listen to them, it often sounds like they want to have it all ways, Bill. Well, they uh, they they do. They don't seem to be able to to get together uh, uh, for, uh, between the provinces across the country. Even with the Americans, we're opening our border uh, today, and the Americans uh, haven't announced that the moment uh, August twenty first is the date they were going to reopen. But there's been no final decision. Uh, on on that so where's the where's the, the if, if they're all using science to make their decisions then they must be looking at different science out of the states we've seen uh, i think it was fauci that said that booster shots for vulnerable or for older people are are coming soon bill are you hoping for booster shots here 
Well, that seems to be the uh, seems to be the indication, and the uh, medical experts that I've uh, spoken to are very much in in favor of uh, that. That uh, uh, the most uh, vulnerable they're they're the ones that we're most concerned now will will die from uh, COVID because of the rate of uh, of vaccination. They say that uh, uh, they're expecting less and less people to be hospitalized, uh, but when uh, members of the older, more vulnerable population uh, get COVID, then they're, uh, because with the variants, they're at a higher risk of, of dying. So the right answer seems to be uh, to get them that uh, third uh, third dose. But there's been no, no actual activity or re- response from those really in charge saying that this is going to happen soon. Here in Ontario, as you know, David, the province is very resistant, A, to mandating vaccines for healthcare workers and education workers, and to vaccine passports, which businesses are clamoring for. Well, they, they don't, but they're trapped in their own optics to a degree. They don't want to do this. But on the other hand, um, the numbers keep growing in, in one category. They're not willing to come out and say we're willing to tolerate these numbers growing because the deaths don't appear to be growing. That at least would be honest if they believe that. So you get this, you said it at the beginning, Libby, you get this mismatch of both both sides to the middle. I want to have, I want to be seen to be vigorously taking action. But on the other hand, I don't want to be really taking the economic hit anymore. So I'm going to kind of finesse both ends. And you wind up in this kind of fog where nobody's quite sure what the game plan is. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. There's no question the topic of mandatory vaccination for healthcare and education workers is at the top of the political agenda in Ontario. Early this month, NDP leader Andrea Horvath faced a barrage of criticism, including from inside her own party, when she disagreed with the concept. She later apologized and clarified that she does agree with mandatory vaccinations for healthcare and other frontline employees. So now that both opposition leaders are in favor, does that cut into liberal ownership of a popular issue? Libby Snymer asked this of liberal leader Stephen Del Duca when he joined her on Monday. I was really proud as Ontario Liberal Party leader. It was two weeks ago today that I made the announcement that I felt that there should be mandatory vaccinations for frontline workers in education and healthcare. To me, it's the reasonable and responsible thing to do. You've heard me talk on your program previously about my daughters who are in the publicly funded education system. My wife and I discussed what September is going to look like for them. It just seems it just seems so reasonable to expect that if they're over 12, they'd get vaccinated, that their teachers will be vaccinated. The fact that we don't know, the fact that it's unclear, that there's nobody tracking this information, especially after what we've gone through during COVID, is just completely, well, frankly, it's completely insane to me. It makes no sense whatsoever. And look, what happened last week with Andrea Horvath, I'm glad that she's now seen the light and come to the right side of the issue. She, you know, it took her some time. It took her far longer than it should have. I, you know, I don't know how reliable her instincts are on issues like this, but she's there now. And so we're going to keep, certainly liberals will keep pushing. And I, I hope, I hope Doug Ford sees the light. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. 
what do you make of his opposition? I mean, you know, frankly, we keep hearing that a big part of his base is anti-vax, but, uh, you know, that's not what got him a majority government. And, and every poll you see, the majority of people are in favor of this. And it's, I think it's, a, it's an issue that could really hurt a politician. This- I, I think so, too. It, for sure, I do believe he is trying to cater to that, that part of Ontario that is vehemently anti-vaxxer, that, uh, you know, for a limited time, both he and Andrea Horvath were, now only he is. And I think that is part of his political calculation. But it just seems to me, again, with all the lessons we should have learned during COVID, with all of the tragedy and all of the loss of li- life and loss of livelihoods, it's just there should be lessons that we learn as a result of this. And being responsible and reasonable, being competent, deciding to side with the science and do the right thing, I would have hoped that Doug would have learned that lesson. It doesn't seem like he has. Uh, you know, I, I don't think people in the province appreciate the position that he's taken, but I'm sure he and his campaign team have done their calculus, and this is where they've landed. Um, one of the things that you did say about this uh, uh, kind of had me scratching my head. You said you don't want it to be punitive and nobody should lose their job. But if you've got a nurse, say, or, you know, somebody who works hands-on with patients in a hospital and they refuse to be vaccinated, how do you, how do they keep their job? Yeah, I know for sure. It's a great point. So what we said from day one was, and I, and I stand by this, I don't believe it needs to be punitive. I think we do need to respect the human rights code, for example. So if there's an individual, whether they're in a school or in a hospital or a doctor's office or a long-term care home, and for example, they, they themselves have a pre-existing medical condition. I'm not uh, talking think, about that. I'm talking about someone who refuses to be vaccinated yeah, so and, I, I, and their yeah, job involves so in hands-on. That, yeah, so in that, in that case, you work with their employer. If they're represented by a union, you work with their union. And maybe you redeploy them to a place where they're not patient-facing or student-facing. I think there's lots of creativity about how we could deal with that. But here's the really, here's the really uh, bizarre part to me, Libby. We don't know right now in Ontario. When I went for both my shots in New York region, nobody asked me what I do for a living. The, the government's not tracking right now what healthcare workers have the vaccinations or what education workers have the vaccinations. And to me, that's also uh, ridiculous at this point, uh, at this point of this pandemic. They don't even know. They should have been tracking this from day one so that we'd be ready to go. Even if Doug Ford woke up tomorrow morning and did the right thing, how would we find out quickly who's gotten the dose? And who doesn't have the dose, given given the nature of the work they do. So the whole thing has just been completely mishandled from day one. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca in conversation with Libby Snymer on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up next, what is the strategy behind saying no to mandatory vaccines for frontline workers? Our panel of experts breaks that down next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The governing Ford PCs are holding firm on their refusal to mandate COVID vaccinations for health and education workers, a decision that does not make sense politically since more than 80 percent of eligible Ontario residents have received at least one dose of vaccine to protect themselves and others. 
There are those MPPs in the Premier's caucus who don't believe in mandating vaccinations for anyone. But those who've yet to get a shot are in the minority. Even NDP leader Andrea Horvath had to backtrack and apologizing for taking that same position after she faced blowback from inside her own party and supporters. So why is Doug Ford sticking to this unpopular position? Libby asked this of our Tuesday strategy panelists, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Well, you've got both sides, quite frankly, Libby, on this. You've got obviously some, and you're saying the silent majority or, or vocal majority or minority that, that want to have it mandated. I think the Premier's been pretty clear about it. And I think that he's always said, look, he has always said that people should and ought to get vaccinated. He's, he's made it abundantly uh, clear <clears throat> where he stands on making sure that people get vaccinated. He's made it available uh, in, in as many places as possible. He's even getting go, old gold buses now transformed into vaccine mobile units. So there's absolutely no reason for people not to get vaccinated. The people who are not getting vaccinated are people that are either, for, for other whatever reasons there are, uh, are not uh, wanting to do it. So whether you mandate it or not, you're still going to get yeah, but yeah, but why expose vulnerable people? Well, no, and I and I and I hear that, and I understand that there are, so especially in the health uh, areas and long-term care facilities, and in other areas. I know Karen, whose father is in a long-term care facility, uh, will have more to say on this as well. But I, I, I listen. There, there is an absolute argument to be made that healthcare workers ought to have and should be mandated. I don't know if it should be a province-wide mandate for vaccines. I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I think people of the responsibility and personal responsibility, quite frankly, to get vaccinated as long as the government makes it accessible uh, as they have been, uh, not only in Ontario, but across uh, across Canada. But but I do think that there's an argument to be made that healthcare workers and those that are in the facilities of, of looking after others um, should be and should be mandated to, uh, to be vaccinated. And I think it should be their organizations that, that decide that they should be mandated versus the government. Let's move it over to Karen. What do you think is behind the government's refusal to mandate it for people who come into contact with vulnerable populations? I can't. I don't have an explanation for it. You know, I I think part of what our collective challenge, though, is, Libby, to be quite honest with you, is that the restrictions we have in place now make it really easy for unvaccinated people to continue doing whatever they want to do. Because we still have to physical distance. We still have to wear masks while we're indoors. We are still required to do all of those things. And so when you, as an employer, when I say to my team, you need to get a vaccination, um, they'll say, or what? Or you have to be tested and wear a mask. Okay, but you're testing me and wearing, I'm wearing a mask anyway. So it, and until we make a shift and say only vaccinated people can do certain things, that, that will then require certain things, other things to happen. And then, but, but right now, as long as the province of Ontario is mandating mask wearing and mandating physical distancing and keeping us in step three, there is not a really strong argument to say anybody else should get vaccinated. The only way it can happen is if the government says, hey, that's the law, Charles Sousa. And, uh, you know, when it comes to education, it really doesn't make sense because there's nine other vaccines they have to take. Absolutely. I mean, we've had vaccine vaccine passports for kids going through school. Uh, all my children had to do it. I recall myself 
having to do it as well. But I, I think to the point, why is Ford not mandating vaccines for frontline workers or a vaccine passport for travelers, or at least for those that are reporting to frontline and those most vulnerable? I think it's simply because the, he's appealing to a faction within his party. And that is a real issue. They are unvaccinated. They're, they're the ones that are, that are fighting for human rights. And they're saying it's a human right not to get vaccinated. Fair enough. But you've already made the argument. Both John and Karen have made the argument that they do not have the right, however, to inflict harm on someone else. And this is it. The numbers tell the story. John rightly put it. The majority of those that are being hospitalized are unvaccinated people. Well, and, it, and it doesn't mean that people that get vaccines aren't going to carry it. That's true. They will. But they won't have the same effect on our on our hospitals and a burden on our in our in our hospital beds as they would if they were not vaccinated. Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Bland works was the motto of former Premier Bill Davis, who was a towering figure here in Ontario. He was Premier for 13 of the 42-year lock the Progressive Conservatives had on this province. He also created our college system, founded four new universities, and created the first Ministry of the Environment. He was known as Brampton Bill, and especially for his collegial approach to politics. Bill Davis died on Sunday at the age of 92. On Monday, Libby Snymer was joined by Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown and Hugh Siegel, a former chief of staff to Bill Davis. When the government had its election of 1975 and went from majority to minority, There was nobody who worked at Queen's Park or the Conservatives who had any history at all of ever being involved with minority government. And I had just finished two years as legislative assistant to the leader of the opposition in Ottawa, Mr. Stanfield, who had to face the Trudeau minority government between 1972 and 74. So they were desperate for someone who had that kind of practical experience. And that's how I was first offered the job to join his staff. Okay, that's interesting. And Patrick Brown, uh, you're a young fella. So what was your first contact with Bill Davis? Well, I first met Bill Davis as a a fan from afar attending uh, events that he had spoken at. Uh, But it was only when I got in the provincial legislature that uh, I got to know him on a more personal level because I sought his his advice and guidance uh, when we were trying to um, rebuild the Progressive Conservative Party and, and bring it back to the Davis uh, roots. Uh, and I would go up to his cottage to, to, to get his counsel. And now more recently, uh, as mayor of, of, of Brampton, of course, um, he's beloved in Brampton and and his uh, friendship and advice uh, on a municipal level have, have, have meant the world. Uh, and I really believe he is the the bar, the gold standard when it comes to public service. And so I, like many, have tried to uh, learn from a man who simply is uh, a statesman and a gentleman and um, one that I don't think we'll ever see like him again. Hugh, you were talking about being able to negotiate a minority government. Now, do you think that was part of the reason uh, for his 
collegial approach, or was was that his kind of natural bent anyway? I think his natural bent was to look for a way for disparate groups to work together. Um, and even though he was a proud member of the Progressive Conservative Party and knew how to get elected and to defend the partisan interest, he always understood that the broad interest of the province and of the country actually came first. So whether it was making minority government work between 1975 and 1981, getting elected several times, making the last minority between 77 and 81 last a whole four years, or whether it was the tremendous work he did in 1981 and 82 to bring parties together so we would be able to repatriate Canada's constitution and have a charter of rights and freedoms, um, it all spoke to that same decent Brampton hometown view that when you get people working together and you look beyond the differences to the things that unite us, we actually make much more progress together as a political party, as a community, as a province, and as a country. And that really defined everything he did. Patrick Brown, you also turned to him for advice at a time in your life that was uh, a very difficult time and a, a crisis time. How did he help you there? Well, I certainly wouldn't be Mayor Brampton today if it wasn't for his friendship and, and support. You know, he uh, told me to keep my chin up, and uh, when you get knocked down, you get back up. And uh, just, um, you know, I, I owe a, a great deal to his kindness and, and, and his support. And, you know, what was fascinating about the former premier is that it was never about him. He always wanted to help others. And I should say it's a privilege to be on this call with, with Hugh Siegel because the Davis family told me uh, that um, it was Hugh Siegel that, you know, during COVID that kept the premier entertained with regular phone calls. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel there's a, um, Hugh Siegel was one of the individuals that the premier actually truly loved. And um, that, that says a lot. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown and Hugh Siegel, a former chief of staff to the late Bill Davis. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Rudy in Toronto phoned about his memories of Bill Davis. I didn't like Bill Davis. Uh, first, uh, the, the first uh, um, 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 notice I, I got about him was that he stopped the Spadina Expressway, which I didn't like because I was uh, with, uh, with people that wanted the, the thing built. Uh, but he was uh, um, he was decent enough to meet with uh, our committee called uh, Go Spadina, and it was it was uh, run by Astor Shiner. And uh, it was a nice uh, having a meeting with him. At least he heard our views. And then uh, actually later on, I began to realize that uh, the guy was probably right. Uh, there we, we didn't need that expressway uh, cutting through our, our city. And uh, as an environmentalist, I couldn't have supported it anyway. So that's how I, I just wanted to let you know how I changed my opinion about him. And I, and I admired him very much uh, after that. 
Bob in Brampton phoned to say he disagrees with Canada reopening the border to Americans, while Canadians have not been granted the same opportunity. I don't understand how we don't have a reciprocal arrangement where Canadians can go south. We're allowing the Americans to come into Canada, but not us. Doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and are we checking that they're all fully vaccinated? Like, next question. Their vaccination rates are nowhere near what ours are. Right, and ours Take a look aren't at the big enough. States that are going crazy right now with excess back sick people. And now, fight back's knockout call of the week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Karen in Toronto, who phoned about her story of international travel and the associated costs. I just got back from Florida on Sunday. It was quite a nightmare, and I, I wouldn't do it again. Uh, before we went, we were told we had to have a PCR test. So that was before we could get on the plane. And uh, that was $150. And when we got off the plane, we just got off the plane and, and walked out. There was nobody checking anything. <laughs> and, and then coming back, we had to get, again, before we could get on the plane, another PCR test. An antigen test wasn't good enough. So we found another lab to do the test. And that was $180 U.S. The COVID test cost more than the flight. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.